Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth, and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast called Behind You, where essentially once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murder, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all true crime. So if you're interested in that, you can subscribe on the YouTube channel, Haley Elizabeth, to see the visual version every Wednesday, or you can head over to Apple, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts podcast and tune in every Tuesday for the audio version but if not totally chill like it is fine no strings attached you do not have to do anything you don't want to do so today we are going to be talking about the case of the DeGrucci family so since there's a lot to talk about let's just get right into it The DeGrucci family had consisted of the father, Wayne, the mother, Jennifer, a daughter, Sarah, and two sons, Matthew and Adrian. The family lived in Albin Park, Australia, New South Wales, and the town was a very nice and quiet town, upper to middle class. The family was said to be quite close, except for their son, Matthew DeGrucci. Matthew DeGrucci was the oldest out of all of his siblings. Matthew was 18, Sarah was 13, and Adrian was 15. A lot of people said that although Matthew was the oldest, he definitely didn't act like the oldest. He was always picking fights with his parents and his siblings. One of the little fights that he would pick with his parents is that his little sister Sarah actually had epilepsy. She just needed a little bit more attention than the two others, and Matthew would fight with his parents on this and say that they're favoriting Sarah. As Matthew got older, when he turned 18, that is when he got his driver's license. And so when he got his driver's license, there was so many fights over him using his mom or dad's car because he didn't have a car at the time, but he also had a girlfriend named Alyssa. And there were a lot of times where Matthew wanted to keep the car overnight because he wanted to spend the night at Alyssa's house. And this again just caused a lot of arguments within the household because the parents didn't want Matthew to keep the car overnight but Matthew did want to keep the car overnight and it was just a big thing and it just got worse and worse over time and it was speculated that on the weekend of March 8th 1996 18 year old Matthew and his mother 41 year old Jennifer got into an argument over him using the car overnight to see his girlfriend Alyssa Um, he asked if he could use his father's car but she said no because his father was actually going to be away on a golf tournament and needed his car overnight and so when Matthew asked if he could use his mom's car his mom declined she was like you can't use my car if you want a car so bad go get your own car you already use the car so often it's my car it was said that it was this argument in particular that would spark certain events following four days later on Tuesday March 12th of 1996 that is when Wayne went away to Sydney which is about an hour away from where they lived to go to a golf tournament and then on the night of the golf tournament, he was just going to spend the night at his parents' house. And this was not random at all. Like Wayne frequently did this because he knew that his parents lived in Sydney. On Wednesday, March 13th of 1996, that is when Steve Bailey, an across-the-street neighbor to the DeGruchis, was standing outside of his house a little past 9 a.m. And as he's looking across the street, he notices Matthew coming out of his house all distracted 
distressed and yelling, Matthew runs over to Steve and tells him something's wrong with mom and Sarah. Now, Steve Bailey knew that Sarah had epilepsy, so he just kind of assumed that maybe she was having a seizure. So he ran inside and he started looking around the house and he noticed that Jennifer, the mom, her door was a little cracked open. So he went to go in there and when he did, the room was pitch black and so he thought that this was just a joke at first, like she was going to pop up and, you know, scare him. So he took the blanket and he kind of yanked the blanket off of her, but when he yanked back the blankets, it was not a joke and he was confronted with Jennifer's lifeless body sitting in a pool of blood. When he saw this, he screamed and he ran out of the house and immediately called the police. So the police entered the household and the first person that they found was 41-year-old Jennifer dead in her bed. And then further down the hallway, they saw Sarah's room and they went into Sarah's room and they also found 13-year-old Sarah lying lifeless and dead in her bed. They went further down the hallway into the garage and that is where they found 15-year-old Adrian lying dead on the garage floor. They start to investigate the crime scene a little bit further. So they investigate Jennifer's room and they find her glasses on her bedside table as if before she went to sleep, she took off her glasses and went to bed. She had an extreme amount of head trauma and detectives say that her head was bashed in so badly that her brain was showing. With this, you know, extreme amount of head trauma, you would think that there would be a lot of blood all over the place. There was very little blood on the walls and the floor. All they could really find were teeny tiny dots all over the ceiling and the walls and it didn't look like the ceilings or the walls had been recently cleaned either which was even more odd. They started to examine the area around Jenny and they found that on the right side of Jenny's bed on the floor there was a large piece of carpet that had been cut out as well as two tiny pieces of carpet cut out at the foot of her bed and in front of her door. The police take note of these details and that's when they move on to Sarah's room. Lying next to her bed, there was a cassette player as if she was listening to music before she went to sleep. Similar to Jenny, Sarah had extreme head trauma. Same thing with Jennifer. This crime scene had very little blood on the walls and the ceilings and the floor. And right next to Sarah though, they see a pillow that is full of blood, but this pillow is not a pillow that Sarah had on her bed. This was actually one of the pillows taken from the couch in the living room. From the amount of blood that was on the pillow, the investigators assume that possibly whoever did this tried to either smother Sarah before killing her or smothered Sarah as they were killing her. So again, the police take note of all of this and move into the garage where 15-year-old Adrian is at. They found Adrian on the floor of the garage with blood surrounded by him and in Adrian's case there was a little bit more blood found on the walls and the ceiling. Blood spatter analysts actually said that in this situation the blood splatter didn't really look like it was coming from Adrian's head. It more just 
looked like whoever did this crime did it with a heavy object because you know when something is wet and then you fling that item around there's going to be drops flying all over the place from the object and that's what the analysts saw in this situation so with the object already having blood on it before striking adrian this told detectives that adrian was the last person to be attacked they were examining around adrian's body they found a red gasoline tank nearby with an open cap so they take a couple of the items in the house such as the gasoline tank into uh testing to get fingerprints or blood matches they also tried to consider the possibility that maybe this was a break-in because when they first entered the house there was a bunch of things that were like thrown around as if someone was looking for something. Upon further investigation, they also found no forced entry into the household. So whoever did this definitely had access into the household. And by what they can see, nothing really of significance was stolen. And they also considered the fact that if this was a robbery, why would they kill Jennifer and Sarah if they were just sleeping? normally in their bed. Why would the robber have to commit a triple homicide just to steal a couple of items in the house? That's a pretty large price to pay. The detectives on the scene also took blue light to certain parts of the house. What they did find in the hallway, small little dots of blood, but it had been diluted. Although it was diluted, they were able to take a cotton swab and just swipe the area that they saw the blood swatch and take that in for DNA testing. So again, whoever had committed this crime had tried to clean up their own blood beforehand. So once the house was investigated, they took all three of the bodies in for an autopsy and they moved from investigating the house onto investigating the mother's car. They search Jennifer's car and in Jennifer's trunk specifically, they find that in her trunk, she actually had this like little compartment where you usually keep your car jack handle and your wheel brace and they noticed that this little compartment was ajar so they opened it more and they saw that both of those items were actually missing. They start investigating the trunk a little further and what they do find in the back of the trunk and this is crazy to me how they were able to find this. You know how like on frilly carpet, carpet has little fringes, like a single fringe of carpet. In the trunk, they found a little fringe of carpet and this carpet matched perfectly with Jenny's carpet. And not only did they find that teeny tiny fringe of carpet, they also saw a teeny tiny bit of a red stain at the end of this fringe. So they put it in a bag and they took it out for testing to see if that red stain was blood. Once they're done investigating the area, um, the father Wayne actually gets new of what happened back home. He rushed home immediately and his whole entire family had been murdered except for his son. And so this was obviously a very tough situation, very devastating situation for him to be in. So later on that day when Matthew was discharged from the hospital, he and Wayne both went into the station for questioning. Later on that day as well, the autopsies from the three bodies came back and they found that Sarah and Adrian 
Adrian's injuries were very similar in that they had a lot of trauma to their forehead and face. So this was definitely a personal crime. She also had a very specific scratch on her right arm that was oddly shaped because the end of the scratch was squared off. So the only thing that the police could really think about that could cause a scratch like that is a carjack handle. They also found the same exact very odd scratch on Adrian's body, specifically on his chest, as well as a circular bruise at the upper of his chest. Adrian had 21 wounds to his face and neck, and on Adrian's left side, they noticed that there was some skin peeling, and they found traces of gasoline on his side and his clothing, and they assumed that this gasoline was probably from the open gasoline tank that was found near Adrian's body. Before I move on, I just want to say there is a lot of misinformation on the internet about this specifically. From the coroner's report, they say that they only found small amounts of gasoline on his side and on his clothing, but when I read certain articles and stuff, they made it sound like he was being drenched in gasoline or that he had gasoline poured on him. No, he was not covered in gasoline. There was no drenching or pouring of the gasoline. He just had some on his left side and his clothing. I don't know. I feel like sometimes articles try to make it more dramatic than what it is, but that's not right. So I just wanted to correct that for you guys. The autopsy also showed that they assumed the attacks began at 8 p.m. March 12th and went until 1 a.m. March 13th. Lastly, covering Jennifer's body, they saw the extreme amount of head trauma to her face and her neck, and they also said that Jennifer's head and facial injuries were so severe that the coroner actually required a blood match sample to identify that this was actually Jennifer. After the autopsy and all of their evidence, they actually conducted a search around the house in search for the murder weapon, but unfortunately found nothing. They then started to interview people in looking for the murderer. And the first two people that they naturally suspected was Wayne and Matthew. Before Matthew went into questioning, they actually asked Matthew to go into the household and see if anything was taken from the household. And they noted that Matthew was very specific in the things that he said was missing. He said that there was a video recorder that seemed to be stolen, his little brother Adrian's school calculator, and his mother's purse. Again, if you're looking at a horrendous crime scene, you're not going to notice that a calculator is gone. So that was very odd to police, but they definitely noted it. First person that they questioned was Wayne. They asked Wayne where he was at the time of the crime. Wayne said that he was about an hour and a half away in Sydney playing golf with his friends. And that night, the night of the crime, he had spent the night at his parents' house. So the detectives had called Wayne's friends that were playing golf that day and asked if Wayne was actually there. And and all of his friends had vouched for him, said that Wayne was indeed there all day. They also contacted Wayne's parents, and Wayne's parents also said, yes, indeed, Wayne was spending the night with us last night. With all of Wayne's alibis, they were able to clear out Wayne, and now it was all about Matthew. 
you're probably wondering, what was that crazy noise? Don't worry, it's still me, just now in sponsorship mode. So I woke up in the middle of the night last night to go to the bathroom, and when I got back to my bedroom door, I noticed that my bedroom door was closed, which was odd because I could have sworn I left it open. So then I go into my room, and all of a sudden, I see someone sitting on my bed with a blanket over them and light emitting from the inside. So naturally, I freak out. And of course, I was scared. I mean, I wanted to run, but Mama raised no so then i walk over i rip off the blankets and lying underneath the blankets is me playing the sponsor of today's episode best fiends so then other Haley tells me that best fiends is a free to download casual mobile puzzle game with thousands of fun and exciting levels and new challenges every time you play brand new events and challenges pop up all the time so you've always got a chance to winning exclusive items characters and rewards you can collect cool fiends and customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs and even if you lose internet don't you even worry because the party never ends because Best Fiends actually has an offline option. It's a super easy and casual game to play when you're waiting in line or on your lunch break. Even with the offline option, you could play it when you're camping or on a road trip. I'm currently on level 37, other Haley said, whilst telling me, current Haley, about the Best Fiends game. She also said that you can download Best Fiends right now, today, for free from the Apple Store or Google Play Store, and you can even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's best fiends. Like friends, but without the R. So I said to other Haley, scoot on over. Let's play some best fiends. (laughs) Okay, back to the podcast. He says that the night of the crime, he was actually spending the night at his girlfriend Alyssa's house. So he went to his girlfriend Alyssa's house on March 12th, and he spent the night at Alyssa's house until the next morning on March 13th. He said that morning on March 13th, he showed up to the home around 8.30 a.m., but he just showed up for a couple of minutes because he forgot his wallet on the kitchen counter. So he literally just went into the house, grabbed his wallet, and went back out to get some cigarettes from the store. He came back to the home around 9 a.m. and when he walked inside, he noticed that it was a little too quiet in there. Nobody was up yet. He knocked on his sister Sarah's door first and when he got no response, he assumed that she was just sleeping. So then he went into his mother's room, but in his mother's room, that's when he fully opened up the door. And then that is when he saw his mother Jennifer. He ran outside of the house, noticed Steve Bailey. That's when Steve Bailey went into the house. Matthew, is claiming that Alyssa is his alibi. Alyssa knows that he couldn't have done this because he was with her all night. And so naturally, they question Alyssa as well. Alyssa said that her and Matthew had actually made arrangements earlier in the day for him to come over to her house that night at 8 p.m. and spend the night. 8 p.m. rolls around and Matthew hadn't showed up yet. So she's like, okay, you know, maybe he just got busy. So it gets a little later around 10 p.m. and Alyssa decides to call the house just to make sure everything is okay and she calls the house at 10 p.m and the phone line just rings right all the way through no one picks up she assumes that maybe he forgot and fell asleep so she goes on to bed now an hour later at 11 p.m that's when Matthew starts knocking at Alyssa's door and Alyssa is very confused she's like why didn't you call me back I thought you weren't showing up you were supposed to be here like four hours ago and Matthew said that he had 
had to stay a little bit later at his house because his home was receiving prank phone calls from a guy on the phone saying that three of his family members were going to be dead tonight. So he needed to stay back with his mom because his mom was really scared about these prank phone calls, but everything was fine now and they should just go to bed. Alyssa tells the police that when he showed up that night, he didn't really seem super scared or frantic, like he just seemed completely normal. After interviewing Matthew and Alyssa, they noticed that there are a lot of slip-ups in Matthew's story. One of the biggest slip-ups that they find in Matthew's story is that when he went into the house, Matthew was asked specifically from the detectives, did you go into Sarah's room? And Matthew said, no, when I got to the house, I just knocked on the door. I didn't hear a reply. I assumed she was sleeping. And this was a very big slip up because from Steve Bailey's report, Steve Bailey said that he came out of the house and he told Steve something's wrong with Sarah and mom. So how could he know that something was wrong with Sarah if he never saw Sarah in the first place? Steve remembered that Sarah had epilepsy and assumed that she was having a seizure. And that's how Steve Bailey knew for a fact that Matthew had mentioned Sarah and his mom. They also asked Matthew which car did he take to go to Alyssa's house and he said his mom's car. So that confirmed that Matthew was the last person to use the car. Another really weird slip up that Matthew had said, when they compared Alyssa's story and Matthew's story, they noticed that in Alyssa's story, Matthew had told Alyssa that the reason why he had to stay back late was because of all of these prank phone calls calls of someone threatening to kill his whole family, yet, you know, you would think this is a very big detail. If, you know, someone calls you and says that they're going to kill your family and then you show up the next morning and your family's dead, that's a pretty big, you know, front of the brain sort of thing to remember. Yet Matthew didn't mention it at all during his questioning. He didn't mention a single threatening phone call. He didn't mention what he told Alyssa when he got there. Police looked into the phone records and they found that the only incoming phone call that night came from Alyssa at 10 p.m., meaning there were no prank phone calls to begin with. So at this point, you're probably wondering, obviously, Matthew did it. Now, the police knew that too. The police were like, obviously, Matthew did it. They can't arrest Matthew for no reason. They need to arrest Matthew because they have enough evidence to suspect him of this murder. And the only way to do that was to either get the murder weapon or point him to the time of the crime. And how they were doing that is, remember how I said earlier, they took the gasoline tank in for fingerprints. They found that there were fingerprints nowhere on the gasoline tank except for underneath the handle. They took a picture of the mirror that was reflecting the underneath of the handle and found that these fingerprints were indeed Matthews. And not only that, but the DNA testing from the diluted blood in the hallway also came back to a perfect match of Matthews. When Matthew was questioned about why his blood was found cleaned up in the hallway, he said that it was from a nosebleed that he had. Police couldn't really, you know, 
argue that. They were like, you know, that is a possibility. Although we don't feel like it's the truth in this situation, it definitely could be a possibility. The biggest piece of evidence that they found was the little fringe of carpet that they found in the trunk. How I said that there was like a red stain at the end. The teeniest, tiniest piece, they cut out the end of this carpet fringe and they put it into testing under a microscope and they found that this red stain was indeed blood and the DNA found on this blood-stained carpet fringe matched perfectly with Matthew's blood samples that he had given. Detectives further question how could Matthew's blood end up on Jenny's carpet in the first place because as I said Jenny had pieces of carpet cut out of her bedroom floor. How did that end up in the trunk of the car knowing that Matthew was the last person to use the mom's car. And then one day, a kid by the name of Terry Williams was biking on a hill with a couple of his friends and they were just doing bike tricks and all of him and his friends wanted to go at the top of this really tall hill so they could go down it and do tricks. And whilst they were at the top of the hill, they noticed that there was something bright red in the dam that was below them. So they drive their bikes down there and they're looking around and they notice that this red thing is a backpack. So they take out the backpack and they open it up naturally because they're kids and they're curious. So when they look into the backpack, they said that in the bag they found pieces of carpet, washed up paper, and a hammer that they actually decided to keep. So they took out the hammer, they put everything back in the bag, and they just threw the bag back out into the lake. So the boys had actually found this evidence a couple of days after the murder but they actually wouldn't come forward to the police with this information until three months later. May 13th of 1996 where there was actually a dam that was nearby Alyssa's house, the same dam that they found the bag at. So they decided to drain that dam and that is when they found not only the red bag but they also found a a bunch of other evidence alluding to the DeGrucci family. Specifically, in this dam, they found the video recorder that was taken from the house, compact discs, a purse with Jennifer DeGrucci's driver's license in it, a school calculator with the initials A. DeGrucci on the back, meaning it was Adrian's calculator, a bunch of Jennifer's paperwork, as well as pieces of carpets that they assumed were the pieces of carpets cut out of the house. A baggie with band-aids inside as well as ripped up pieces of paper, about 30 ripped up pieces of paper. And when further examining this piece of paper, they noticed that on the paper it seemed like it was handwritten. So they take it to an analysis to figure out what exactly was written on this piece of paper. So whilst they were doing all of that, that is when the teenage boys actually come forward to the police with this hammer because they said that a couple months prior they had found the same exact red bag with all of this stuff in it but they took the hammer because they thought you know the hammer was cool they didn't get any repercussions from the police with this probably because it was very embarrassing for the police that like literally this group of teenagers found the murder weapon and all of the evidence included a couple days after the murder whilst it took them three months to figure it out so the police took all of the evidence back to the station and they were able to construct the 
letter that was found in the plastic baggie together, they could make out words such as, quote, open gate, open blinds, mom, Sarah, Adrian, hit arm with pole, cut somewhere with knife, etc. So they compared this handwriting to Matthew's handwriting and found Matthew's handwriting was very, very similar to the note that they found in the lake. Matthew most likely made a checklist for his murder meaning it was premeditated, and threw all of the evidence into the lake. On June 23rd of 1996, after three months with all of the evidence put together, they had enough evidence to arrest Matthew. Hey, don't worry, it's still me, just thanking the last sponsor of today's episode, policy genius. In an unpredictable economy, life insurance is very, very important and can offer you peace of mind if you have anyone around you that relies on you financially, such as a child, a parent, a business partner. Life insurance gets more expensive with age, so the earlier you start, the better. And even if you get life insurance through work, sometimes that's just not enough when trying to cover your family. And I know what you're probably thinking, but there's so many life insurance companies out there. How do I know which one is best for me? my budget. Well, no need to fear. Policy Genius is here. Policy Genius is an insurance comparison website that makes it easy to compare quotes from top companies to find you the best insurance for the lowest price. You could even save 50% on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Just head over to policygenius.com and get personalized quotes in minutes with the help of licensed agents at Policy Genius that work for you and not the insurance companies. The amazing agents at Policy genius are right beside you the entire time to answer any questions you have or to just help you better understand your options to make sure that you are making all of your decisions in confidence and I personally think that's really really amazing that they have that because sometimes life insurance or just insurance in general can be very very confusing so having someone by your side throughout the entire process that are licensed agents so they know what they're doing is very comforting head over to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. On October 15th of 1998, that is when Matthew's trial began, and the whole entire time, surprisingly, Matthew's father stood by Matthew's side the entire time. Matthew's father, Wayne, truly believed that Matthew could not commit a horrendous murder like this. He believed his child was innocent and that the real murderer was somewhere out there, although his blood was found at the crime scene. His handwriting was on a checklist that they found in a lake and that lake also had a bunch of other evidence from the crime scene even though Matthew's blood was also found on a piece of carpet that was found in the car that Matthew last took. It was just so much evidence to prove that Matthew did do this yet Wayne did not believe any of it. He just stood by his son's side the entire time. Oh since Matthew since the very ending preached his innocence and said that he had nothing to do with this. He never made an official confession, but this is what the police believe happened that night. The police believed that on the day of March 12th, when Alyssa and Matthew had made arrangements that night for him to spend the night at Alyssa's house, he had asked his parents if he could take his dad's car out, but the dad declined because he had a golf tournament and was going to be away for the night. If he could ask his mom, Jennifer, if he could use the car that night, 
Jennifer said, no, you can't use my car. And because of this, it created a big altercation between the two. This situation mixed in with Matthew feeling like he wasn't getting any respect. And so then that's when Matthew went into his room and he started to plan out how he was going to kill his entire family that night. In a frustrated rage, he went out to his mother's car. He grabbed the car jack and the handle out of his mom's trunk and went into the home to start attacking his family. It was believed that Jennifer was sleeping at the time of the crime, so he went into his mother Jennifer's room and started to attack her. To this day, the police do not know why there was very little blood just found at the crime scene. Uh, They assumed that maybe he was lying on top of her, but from the blood splatter, that didn't really make much sense, and it also didn't make sense that the walls didn't look freshly cleaned, and if you were cleaning blood off the walls, why would you leave tiny, tiny bits of blood on the walls? It was also believed from Sarah's cassette tape at the side of her bed that Sarah had possibly had music on, so she couldn't hear all of the commotion until she took her headphones off and started to hear the commotion. She started to scream and in a panic, Matthew grabbed a random pillow from the couch and started to smother Sarah, trying to hide her scream so that it wouldn't alarm Adrian, who was currently in the garage. And as he was smothering her, that is when he started to attack her as well. He moved on to Adrian in the garage. Adrian was in the garage said to be fixing a chair because there was also a broken chair right next to Adrian. Matthew had attacked Adrian as well. After he had come to terms with what he just did, he started to go through a number of solutions of how he could possibly get away with this. It was premeditated, but only the actual murder. As far as the aftermath of it or how he was going to cover his tracks, I don't think he really thought that far ahead. He started to go through a number of solutions of what he could do. That's when it's believed he tried to make it look like a break-in. So he took a red backpack of his and put a bunch of random things of the house inside of the backpack and he couldn't take things like TVs or computers because all he had was a small backpack to put all of these items in, such as Adrian's school calculator, a video recorder, his mom's purse. He also went through the entire house and started to just rummage through everything to make it look like a break-in and it was believed that at one point Matthew kind of realized that this wasn't going to work for some reason but he couldn't go back and like undo everything. He had completely destroyed the house. So he went back into the garage and he found the tank of gasoline. So he thought that what if instead of making it look like a break-in, he instead burned the bodies. And so he attempted at burning Adrian's body first, but quickly realized that he could not burn his entire family. That was going to take a lot of time. He didn't know what he was doing. So he contemplated burning the house down, but again, that probably wouldn't work. Instead of trying to cover up the scene, he decided to cover up his own tracks. So he went through the house and retraced his steps, starting with Jennifer's room. He realized that he had bled a lot on the carpet, so he cut out pieces of the carpet that had his blood on it and put it in the backpack. He also went through the garage and Sarah's room, and he noticed that he was bleeding in the hallway as well and cleaned up his blood 
in the hallway as well. And at this point, it was around 10 p.m. where Alyssa had called and wondered where he was. He, at this point, realized that it had gone very, very late. And so, in a panic, he just let the phone call go through and quickly get everything together. He put all of the evidence into a backpack. He put this backpack and purse in the trunk of his mom's car, which would explain why there was a fringe of carpet in the mother's car. On his way to his girlfriend Alyssa's house, he drove past a nearby dam where he threw all of the evidence in and then went to Alyssa's house and made up that random excuse about prank phone calls. So then on October 14th of 1998, two years after the murder, the jury had found Matthew guilty for murdering his mother Jennifer, his sister Sarah, and his brother Adrian. He was sentenced to a minimum of 21 years and a max sentence of 28 years in prison. After the verdict was read, it was said that he had absolutely no expression on his face. He said little to nothing throughout the entire trial. He just seemed very dead inside as if he just had no expression. He was emotionless. No one knows where the murder weapon is. No one really knows what happened and no one truly knows the motive as well. The only things that detectives can do is speculate upon the evidence that they have because they never got a true confession from Matthew. As far as the aftermath of this crime, uh, as I said, he received a max sentence of 28 years and he was eligible for parole in 2017. His legal representative, Melissa Smith, had said, quote, Matthew has demonstrated he is not a risk to the community and has a strong structured plan for post-release. He has obtained a bank account, Medicare card, tax file number, birth certificate, a photo ID card, and a forklift license and a learner's driver's license. This attempt for parole in 2017 was later declined because many people, such as a man named Howard Brown, who was an advocate for the DeGrucci family, said that Matthew was still indeed a danger to society and he had a lot of anger management problems and that Howard believes in no doubt in his mind this will happen again if he's released because he's just not ready for it. But despite everyone saying that he was not ready to be released, in August of 2019, Matthew was released from prison and is currently on parole at the age of 41 years old. As part of his parole, he is not to contact, stalk, harass, or intimidate any of his family members such as aunts, uncles, etc. He cannot enter the Illawarra or Shoalhaven local government areas. The father, Wayne, had actually gotten a new family since then. He had been remarried with a new family and Matthew currently stays with his father and his new family. Matthew, right now, like as we're speaking, is out and about with the support of his father, his aunt, and his elderly grandparents. Although his aunts and uncles and grandparents are on on his side. Not everyone in the family is on his side. Jennifer's brother actually had come out to the press and said, quote, he murdered my sister Jennifer, my nephew Aiden, and my niece Sarah. 
that's three murders, he should be given three life sentences. Another family member said, quote, no matter what sentences you give to the offender, we are the ones who get the life sentence. And then another family member had actually said that they could not understand how someone like Matthew could be allowed back to society after carrying out such a horror, believing killers like him had, quote, lost their soul. As for Matthew right now, he is currently, as I said, 41 years old and he is living with his father, Wayne, who is now retired. That is the end of today's story. Let me know your thoughts um, in the comments below if you're watching this on YouTube. There's so many things about this story that is very wild to me, such as how could the father stick by Matthew's side the entire time? I can understand it's very unbelievable to think of the possibility that your son had killed your family, the love of your life, your son, your daughter, everyone you ever loved, your son had murdered, brutally murdered. And I know that's a very hard term to come to, but it's just, it was so wild to me to hear that, although through all of this, Wayne still stayed on Matthew's side and truly, truly believed that someone else was responsible for this, although there was so much evidence to point Matthew to the time of the crime. I also think like the evidence that they found throughout this case as well was very interesting. When they said that they found that like little fringe of carpet and the little bit of blood on that little bit of carpet is what pointed him to the time of the crime. That part was really wild to me as well as the diluted blood in the hallway. I didn't even know you could do that, that you could like find traces of diluted blood. So even if you were to commit a crime and your blood got on the crime scene, even if you tried to clean it up, you're truly not cleaning it up because people can still notice. It was a lot of things that I definitely learned throughout this case and I found it very, very interesting. So if you guys also found this case very, very interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube or if you're on Apple, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts. Make sure to rate it five stars. Make sure to drink some water, get outside, get some fresh air, a little bit of sunlight, you know, try to try to make today a good day. So I love you, I love you, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.